0: Kevin Gilmartin is Professor of English at the California Institute of Technology and a regular visiting professor at the Center for 18th Century Studies in the University of York, England. In addition to a range of articles on the politics of romantic period literary culture, he is the author of Print Politics, the Press and Radical Opposition in Early 19th Century England, and the co-editor with James Chandler of Romantic Metropolis, the Urban Scene of British Culture, 1780-1840, to 1840, a collection of essays on the urban world of British romantic writing. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: One of the most prominent literary critics and otherwise alive and active during this period 1790 to 1820 was William Hazlitt. You have some interesting things to say about his role not only as a literary critic but as a political commentator. I wonder if we could start off by talking about the relationship between a literary critic and the political environment in which he or she uh, operates.
1: Well, Hazlitt was first and foremost a journalist, and I think that's important to understand about him and about the period. I mean, this was an age in which, you know, which very much thought of itself as an age of uh, readers. The number of periodicals was exploding. The literacy rates were rising. Hazlitt published in very traditional forms that had been around for a while, magazines he published in the Edinburgh Review that was just developing in this period. He published in some of the very sort of radical periodicals of the period that were just emerging. This is the age of the American and the French Revolution. William Cobbett's political register with John Hunt, who was... Lee Hunt's brother, the two of them had produced a periodical called The Examiner, which was central to the radical politics of the Napoleonic and post-Napoleonic period.
0: This is interesting and, would you say, unique in that he's he's writing for, for publications right across the spectrum.
1: Hazlitt's very distinctive in that way. I mean, I wouldn't say across the spectrum because he certainly doesn't write for the right-wing press. <laughs> he, he, he challenges and contests the right-wing press, but among liberal and left-leaning journalists in the period, he certainly was capable of expressing himself in in a wider range. I mean, the, the Whig Edinburgh Review was a kind of very mainstream publication, whereas some of these other publications that he worked in. And he uh, also, generically, he wrote across the spectrum. I and mean, as you say, he was a literary cr- critic, one of the foremost. He lectured uh, as well as uh, published on the history of the drama. He was a theater reviewer. He wrote on the history of all all sorts of literary forms in the period. Keats was impressed with him as a lecturer. Absolutely. Keats described Hazlitt's prose as a whale's back in the sea of prose. It just seemed extraordinary to Keats. Keats was influenced by some of his theories of literature and of criticism. He originally wanted to be a painter, and he was an important uh, art critic as well. So, Hazlitt stands in a sort of pivotal position in London in this period, negotiating the kind of whole range of of print culture and even aspects of the culture that he didn't necessarily creatively participate in, like theater, he interpreted and tried to make sense of. And he was deeply interested in what we now think of as maybe elite forms of culture, um, Shakespeare, Wordsworth, things like that. But he was also very interested in popular culture, street culture, uh, wrote essays, famous essays on boxing. And um, street performers of the period. One of his important essays is called The Indian Jugglers.
0: He, he came from sort of middle class. His father was a Unitarian uh, minister,
1: dissenting minister.
0: So was it. Just his raw talent that provided him with all of these venues?
1: It was a struggle. I mean, uh, there's no doubt for someone like myself, who a- admires you know, the, the important writers of the period, how's it an extraordinary prose writer? There's just no way of getting around his, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, the, the sort of power of his prose. Uh, on the other hand, he, he struggled throughout his life just to support himself and just mm-hmm. to make a living. He, he by no means got very wealthy doing this. You wouldn't quite want to say he was a hack, but he was very much a working journalist. He put together all sorts of things to survive. And this wasn't the first thing he set out to do. His father, who, as you mentioned, was, was a Unitarian minister, expected him to follow in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And certainly at, in his earliest years of attending these sort of dissenting academies, where he got a, quite a progressive education for the period, that probably was not something that Hazlitt resisted. Very early on, though, it did become clear to him that he wasn't going to do that. His first ambition was, was to be a philosopher. He wanted to produce an important philosophical text, and he did publish it all although it, it didn't have an impact. Uh, then he wanted to be a painter.
0: On the front of Tom Pollan's biography right. is his self-portrait. Yes, yeah, and I yeah, was startled
1: I to... I, there was a, w- a wonderful moment in one of his essays, very poignant moment, where he describes painting his father Sitting for one of his paintings and it was a, obviously a very vexed moment in some way between them because this was the younger William Houslett working out a career that his father would have preferred that he didn't take you know it's, it's very poignant and it very much expresses it in those terms and he was committed politically and spoke about this again and again to what later would come to be called a kind of meritocracy, the rise of talent. This was something he was deeply committed to. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in terms of his political position, because on the one hand, it certainly establishes his radical credentials. On the other hand, in a period in which radicalism is becoming much more popular and plebeian and demotic, Hazlitt's interest in categories like genius... Uh, and in the superiority of certain kinds of talent, in some way, and this is complicated, but in some way distinguishes him from uh, some of the more plebeian radical journalists of the period.
0: Sounds like Nietzsche there. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, you know, uh, I'm I'm not sure about that, but, but he certainly felt that literature and the arts was a place in which genius, superior talent expressed itself and be acknowledged and and recognized and and it's sometimes said and i think this is right that Hazlitt was more of a democrat in his politics than he was in his approach to art and that's one of the things that Mm -hmm. positions him in a complicated way that said as someone who myself has worked on the more popular radical press of the period one of the claims that even ordinary i mean richard Carlyle. Who was one of the ultra radical Republican journalists of the period, who was a journeyman tinsmith who sort of self-educated himself and continued to self-educate himself because he spent most of the 1820s in prison, (laughs) uh, even as he continued to produce his journal, The Republican. He was fiercely committed to this same notion of meritocracy. So it it wasn't the case that Hazlitt's commitment to this kind of what we would now think of as a more elite conception of the arts necessarily distinguished himself from the kind of working-class radical culture of the period because one of the things that this working-class radical culture was pro- Testing against was uh, inherited privilege, and, and that was certainly something that Hazlitt resented as well.
0: He, he doesn't quite fit with Byron and, and his gang, or with uh, the, the working class.
1: One of the things that endlessly fascinates me about Hazlitt, and he stated it as a, a principle in the preface to his political essays, which came out in 1819, and was actually published by one of the ultra-radical printers and publisher of the period, William Holmes, so it's one of the places we sort of map Hazlitt's politics, that we want to place him more in this Georgian radical culture of, of journalism. And I forget the wording exactly, but he said, it's an important, uh, if delicate, point that the Friends of Freedom should know uh, their own weaknesses, and the strengths of their enemies. So he was more interested and more willing than most radical journalists to consider the limits and the problems in the radical culture of the period, and also the, the strengths, the you know, the alarming strength of conservative culture in the period. This is a, a, an expression of a capacity for self-criticism that I think is, is quite extraordinary. In that. He was a compelling critic of others, but he was a compelling kind of um, Mm self-critic, not just personally, but of the principles he subscribed to. He saw their limits.
0: Well, isn't that something that defines him as as a a disinterested, in a sense, critic who sees criticism as argument, and the best argument wins?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and Hazlitt staged many of his essays in some ways as a kind of internal argument i mean his great essay what is the people opens as if it's a kind of dialogue as if it's a debate and who are you to ask that question he's he he stages these these kind of internal contests so
0: he's not sort of pontificating he's really taking an issue and tearing it apart and grappling with it and
1: Absolutely. And and it's a process he experienced briefly, you know, in part of this struggling career he had. He was briefly a parliamentary reporter. Um, So he had that experience of transmitting to the public debates in Parliament. That's
0: interesting. Johnson did the same thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And in many ways, it's an interesting period for parliamentary reporting, because on the one hand, it was one of the ways in which The British political system, despite all of the problems with the uh, franchise and with inequities in representation, it was felt to be, both by those on the left and the right, a kind of concession to democracy that the proceedings of Parliament be published. However, it was kind of quasi-legal. It was tolerated (laughs) Mm. to report the proceedings of Parliament, but it was only later that it became kind of formally uh, acknowledged. So Hazlitt, in that sense, was participating. I mean, he he was a radical activist in lots of ways. Simply by reporting the proceedings of Parliament, he was participating in this kind of opening out. But he was also interested in terms of that issue of dialogue and debate, just in the life of the street you know, catching the sort of different voices. When you read his essay, The Fight, one of the things that always strikes me about it, no matter how many times I read it and reread it, is it starts in London and it it does end, he travels out of London to this boxing match. But most of what the essay is about is the trip out there and the return trip and the conversations he has along the way. Conversations in a stagecoach, conversations in a tavern. He's, he's interested in that, that world of talk and dialogue and mm-hmm. conversation. He but, loved the
0: coffee house. Uh,
1: absolutely, and the taverns. Uh, yes. You know, that's another way where his dissenting heritage, where the fact that he came from this Unitarian background, this, this was a culture in terms of its education, practices and in terms of its commitment to print culture, that was deeply interested in the idea that it goes back to Milton, someone who he paid credit to again and again in his writing, the notion that truth came from argument, from, yeah. from you know, the, the, the coming together of... The clashing and the,
0: the forging of truth that wasn't obviously absolute, it was just truth for that moment, and it may not be truth if someone comes... a bit like science, really. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and in that sense, one of the things his journalism quite wonderfully captures is this experiential quality of the arts, his interest in the theatre. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, when you read Keats on the theater in the period, when you read Coleridge on the theater in the period, when you read Hazlitt on the theater in the period, much of it is about what you're looking at up on stage. But much of it is about the experience of the theater. You know, the crowds, the mobs, getting in, getting in. There were riots in this period. They're called the OP riots, the old price riots. And Hazlitt was interested in this. They tried to change the seating structure of the period. The feeling was it, it took this sort of more democratized, theatrical space for the audience and uh, structured it more hierarchically and Hazlitt was among those who felt that theatre could and should be a space for shared public participation
0: I'm speaking with Kevin Gilmartin who's a professor at Caltech and a visiting professor at the Centre for Eighteenth Century Studies at uh, York University in England. Tom Pollan has written a, a biography of Hazlitt and Pollen did an evaluation once of Keats's On Autumn that I found quite annoying. <laughs> he read I think it was the Manchester riots and Keats's experience with that into the poem in a way that I found full of conjecture and and lacking any kind of proof. And and maybe this is what Hazlitt was about or or maybe not. Trying to separate the politics of the period from the artistic output and judging the work of art on its, quote, own merits, its aesthetic values, as opposed to reading it as some sort of political statement. Right. Is that what you get into? Or or not?
1: Again, one of the things that fascinates me about Hazlitt is... in in terms of the response you just described, because Paulin's a wonderful poet himself, finding this critic and poet that one admires reading a poem in a way that strikes you as misguided or wrong. I think you'd have to say that you can put Hazlitt on both sides of that equation. One example, in a remark that he recorded several times in his writing, but most famously in his great essay, uh, My First Acquaintance with Poets, in which he pays tribute again to his father, a Unitarian minister, but also describes having met Coleridge at a point in Coleridge's career where Coleridge was on the verge of becoming a Unitarian minister, himself but instead he got a, a, a legacy and an income that allowed him not to pursue that profession and to become the complicated writer that he became instead and Hazlitt was a very young man who was you know impressed with this elder figure and he ventured it was it was a kind of risk he took the remark essentially the claim was that it was a sign of a vulgar, democratical mind, you know, uh, as Hazlitt was, a, a man of the left, who lacked the capacity to understand, you know, the virtues of great writing, if he didn't acknowledge that Burke was a great man. And Hazlitt did. Edmund Burke was the the great writer of the counter-revolution of mm. the right mm-hmm. in Britain in this period. His reflections on the revolution in France is seen as pivotal in a shift in British public opinion from sympathy for the French Revolution the hostility for the French Revolution. He had been a sympathizer with the American Revolution. And so for Hazlitt, Burke was a very complicated figure. How does that get yeah. to, to Coleridge? Uh, uh, he, he adored, Hazlitt adored Burke's prose, but despised his politics, and particularly despised this shift from left to right. So one of the things Hazlitt was expressing to Coleridge at this time was a perception on his part that one had to, and it's part of his interest in what he called disinterestedness. That one has to be able to sympathize across the political spectrum and not simply impose your own political views on forms of art, that one might be interested. So that's one side of Hazlitt, and I think that's extremely important to Hazlitt. The other side, though, is another contest he had with Coleridge, where Coleridge produced this account of The Tempest, in which he said Caliban, who is easily read as the sort of villain of that play, is the Jacobin, the French revolutionary figure. And Hazlitt produced uh, response to this, this was reported in the press as a feature of one of Coleridge's lectures, Hazlitt re- produced a response to this in which he said, that's absurd. In fact, it's Prospero, the hero of the play, who's the true Jacobin, because he believes in the power of knowledge.
0: And Caliban is the, sort of the rightful... King of, of the island. The
1: original. He's the, like the, the aboriginal. Absolutely. I mean, the politics of that play is extraordinarily kind of went on being kind. In a in a sense, this this contest between Coleridge and and Hazlitt is one episode in a long history of contested interpretations of this play. But what interests me about that moment is as soon as Hazlitt does this, as soon as he sets his own highly politicized and tendentious, he knows this is not reading of the caliban prospero relationship against Coleridge, rather than ultimately defend and pursue that position, he sets these two against each other and he says, this whole thing is absurd and just lets it drop. So in a way, Hazlitt was willing to experiment with those kind of tendentious... I mean, you're describing this reading of Keats's To Autumn as overly politicized in a way that doesn't respect what you find in the text. Hazlitt was willing to pick up for the purposes of this kind of p- literary political combat mm-hmm. a reading that he himself knew was tendentious mm-hmm. and it was part of what he considered this kind of literary warfare in the he, period
0: the playfulness yeah. it? It, which is very appealing that he's not doctrinaire he's not wedded to any kind of blinkered view of the world Right, and this is what I found offensive about Pollen's take
1: but again you know as you read Hazlitt and as you Hazlitt was perfectly willing to take up Just those kinds of positions, which seem quite tendentious, and then put them down. For the sake
0: of the argument, for For, the sake sake of the new understanding.
1: But there's this other part of Hazel, I think particularly in, in his politics. He was raised in this dissenting, again, what we would now call kind of left, liberal, radical tradition... And that was one thing that that he never gave up. He would have an essay that would, you know, explore any range of positions, but he would return again and again to his fundamental, essential commitment to, to a radical, progressive politics. And that's one of the reasons for my own interest in him. And it's something that was very difficult, I think, for Hausler to to negotiate, how to practice this kind of disinterestedness uh, that he theorized, this ability to take on consider other points of view. At the same time, there were a number of, Burke was not the only one, there were a number of major political and cultural voices in the period. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, early in his career when Hazlitt first met him, was a radical uh, and became a Tory conservative. Wordsworth, early in his career, was some kind of radical as well mm. and became more conservative and these were people that It's Haslick, typical
0: of getting of, of aging isn't right. it Right
1: but it was something that Hazlitt refused to allow to happen to him and he, he really alienated those figures and helped produce an account of Romanticism of the Romantic period that we've inherited in lots of ways by describing that what we now call the first generation and what he knew of as the Lake School of Poets mm. Wordsworth, Coleridge and Southey, as apostates that's what he called them, apostates to the cause of liberty. And he never forgave them. And he refused to give up his own commitment, particularly to Napoleon. So
0: basically he was saying that they what, weren't true to their original ideals. Absolutely. They uh, They copped out this in the face of people getting slaughtered. This was Burke's position, is look what's happening. These are wonderful ideals, but people are getting slaughtered in the streets here.
1: I mean, one of the things about supporting Napoleon as such is, in a certain way, and you wouldn't want to say Hazlitt glossed it over, but given that Hazlitt was of the next generation, he was much less concerned with the politics of the terror in that period, and much more concerned with the imperial revolutionary politics that Napoleon represented. Now, again, for the British who fought decades of war against revolutionary and then Napoleonic France, Napoleon was also a figure of slaughter. But for Hazlitt, again, he represented this new democratic world in which talent, greatness, rose the top
0: but wasn't he disillusioned by the way Uh, that napoleon became the emperor
1: yeah you know this is a vexed issue in hazlitt's career but he remained true to napoleon and Mm -hmm. like many on the left in britain at various times he felt that it was the british war policy against france forced france into this position
0: he was quite upset with
1: waterloo wasn't he absolutely it was uh, and you know people describe him as falling into depression the, the whole issue of hazlitt's sustained commitment to radicalism is further complicated in some way and it's in some way a post-waterloo condition by a kind of disenchantment mm. that fell over him he certainly was not a radical optimist He has an interesting essay uh, called—it's a fragment of an essay— called Why the Arts are Not Progressive. And while he came out of this unitarian dissenting culture that was deeply committed to ideas of progress, he certainly wasn't sure that they applied to the arts and to culture. His interpretations of the cultural world around him often draw on theories of corruption, luxury, degeneration, as well as progress and advancement. And he wasn't at all convinced, despite his commitment to radical principles that some utopian democratic world was just around the corner. So there was there a was disenchantment, a cynicism, a sort of darkness that in certain ways is based on his political experience, but one would also want to say it's also based on his temperament. One of his great essays is called The, the Pleasure of Hating.
0: But how does that influence his uh, evaluation of art and the determination of value?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, a lot of the debates, particularly in the 18th century, about the arts had to do with emerging distinctions between elite and popular culture. Hazlitt was less interested in those. He was helped produce uh, The Cult of Shakespeare, That Mm -hmm. we've inherited. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain production of elite culture.
0: Yes and no. I mean, Shakespeare appealed to the masses.
1: And this is a period in which, to some extent, one might want to say that was shifting. Hazlitt's understanding of the art of Shakespeare was of a popular art, Mm. but we don't think necessarily of Shakespeare that way anymore. But
0: but at the time, he was popular culture.
1: Absolutely. His interest in uh, the visual arts was in some ways different from his interest in popular or street culture. So there's a way in which he was resisting, uh, but also participating. In, in some of those developments. His accounts of Wordsworth, his his response to the poetry of Wordsworth, again, it's this kind of double-mindedness. He was willing to acknowledge the greatness of Wordsworth's poetry, even as he again and again attacked Wordsworth's politics, even more in some sense than his response to Coleridge and his response to Robert Southey. His response to Wordsworth really captures that Attempt to come to terms with with a poetry of greatness. There's a, a series of reviews in the Examiner of Wordsworth's Excursion that he wrote. And Yet, it's a
0: purely sort of aesthetic.
1: My sense is that it, it's it's rare for Hazlitt to uh, he you know he he has aesthetic category that he works with, but he can't respond to Wordsworth without allowing these political judgments for example uh, his response to the excursion and the excursion is a complicated poem in itself the great epic poem that we turn to when we think of wordsworth's greatness is a poem called the prelude which remained unpublished in hazlitt's lifetime so hazlitt didn't know the Prelude. what hazlitt knew is this poem called the excursion wordsworth's kind of counter-revolutionary epic one of the characters in it is a disenchanted revolutionary.
0: Oh, so the the actual work of art is a political statement.
1: Absolutely. So absolutely. it would be, be
0: difficult for Hazlitt not to react to it. Right,
1: right. But but one of the interesting things is that Hazlitt stages in his response to this poem his own response to what he saw as the problematic politics of Wordsworth's kind of ruralism. So while Hazlitt was very much a man of London. He saw Wordsworth as promoting this culture of rural retreat, and he again and again develops those differences in his response to Wordsworth and, and ends up saying some, from the perspective of rural life, some quite offensive things like, all country people hate each other. Uh, he again and again wrote about this new democratic world that he saw emerging in London, and although there were important rural and provincial Radical cultures in this period, he was less willing to to acknowledge those, and and so you can see this coming out in his, in his response to Wordsworth.
0: What about purely aesthetic yeah. works? Did you ever do anything like Paulin did with, with Keats?
1: He certainly had ways of responding to arts, and you know we've talked about this uh, category of gusto, which mm. is this kind of emotional force.
0: And isn't his, that what he's sorry? Isn't that what he's criticized for as a critic who who basically gushes forth? With enthusiasm, but doesn't really uh, back it up with what?
1: Aesthetic analysis, formal analysis. analysis
0: yeah. yeah.
1: He, he certainly was a, a writer of powerful emotional responses. You know, when you read his response to the visual arts, when you read his response to theater, and this is one of the things that for a long time has identified Hazlitt with a certain way of thinking about uh, romantic expression. In a lot of ways, critics nowadays are less inclined than they were 15 or 20 or 30 years ago to see a coherent development of something called romanticism. this period. But when they did, it was certainly identified with a number of things. One was subjectivity, you know, person, Mm. personal expression. And another was this, this kind of more emotional, more affective development. And that certainly comes out in Hazlitt's writing, where he was interested in developing that kind of affective emotional response. But again, that's not necessarily distinctive to his period it's part of a longer 18th century development of a culture of sensibility. Johnson put it beautifully,
0: where he talks about criticism being a method of moving from the subjective to the objective. That was the role of criticism, was to take it out of the realm of personal reaction and to put it into a a universal rule, I I suppose.
1: That has long been and remains one critical impulse. And certainly, Hazlitt's notion of disinterestedness is part of that history
0: did he come up with criteria Uh, there
1: there's a a a wonderful book on hazlitt by david bromwich um hazlitt the mind of a critic that that talks about hazlitt's uh, aesthetic categories hazlitt never gave up on his philosophical ambitions and bromwich reads seriously and he was one of the first to read seriously Hazlitt's early philosophical essay on human action and what its implications were for Hazlitt's criticism. But I think Bromwich spends some time in that book, rightly, distinguishing Hazlitt's sense of disinterestedness Mm. from later senses of disinterestedness. And for me, one of the things that comes out of that is Hazlitt did not feel that shedding one's own prejudices, shedding one's own personal investments, was necessary to a critical or disinterested response and openness to other prejudices Mm -hmm. and other subjective positions was much more what he was interested in and again that gets back to some things we were saying earlier about the way when one reads Hazlitt's prose and one gets a sense of of his life you know the sense of argument and one could see another version as you say of this desire for some universal perspective that would want to put argument behind. But that wasn't the case for Hauser. It was more staging these kinds of contests among various positions. And again, at the beginning of the political essays, when he says that it's important that we know the strength of our enemies as well as our own weaknesses. And I wouldn't have put it this way, but for me, Hauser comes out as, in some sense, the conscience of the radical movement. He's constantly subjecting potential allies criticism. Some of his friends didn't like him much for this. He produced a savage critique of Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. And it was a sort of an, an aside in certain ways. But Lee Hunt um, who was a friend of, of both of theirs, was offended by this. It seemed to him a breach of a kind of radical solidarity. But Hazlitt was more concerned to pursue these kind of critical impulses wherever they took him.
0: And it shows him as being disinterested.
1: Yeah, but but again, not in that sense of see- seeking some transcendental universal perspective, but no. in, in letting the play of difference unfold. It seems to me that
0: the thesis then is that is that there there is no universal set of criteria by which you judge works of art it works like the legal system works what there is, is is the predominant or the best argument to date in favor or against a particular work of art and that stands until someone is able to come up with a, a better argument that works in favor or against that work of
1: art I, I, absolutely and again i think you know has life in journalism and he was interested in the longer history of print culture. You know, for him there were a number of key events, but one of them was the Protestant Reformation and the vernacular translation of the Bible. And again this this is part of his dissenting heritage. But he really felt that the the history of the longer history, European history, going back to the Protestant Reformation was sort of crucial to this opening out of culture, to the, the sort of process of, of debate and argument.
0: Mm. That's exactly what Luther was about, bringing the word to, if not the masses, then at least the literate, right? so that they could, as opposed to having to go through a particular filter.
1: Right, and, and again, you know, Haslett made the connection between that episode and his own revolutionary era, the Age of Revolution, one of his most famous statements in his preface to the life of Napoleon Bonaparte was that the French Revolution could be considered a remote but inevitable consequence of the invention of the art of printing so he made that connection now when when he developed that claim it was not for him part of this sort of secular revolutionary modernity of his own era he wanted he insisted upon tracing it back through the protestant reformation uh, making that connection and his experience of the reversal of revolutionary forces in his own time was something that forced him to come to terms with the fact that print culture by his own time ranged itself on both sides of the equation that there were radical voices in the press but there were also reactionary anti-progressive voices in the press and that was something on the one hand he fought a kind of literary warfare by occupying one side of that equation uh, another famous episode in Hazlitt is his contests with some of the conservative reviewers of the time, and he described William Gifford, the editor of the Tory Quarterly Review, as the invisible link uh, between literature and the police. So, in some ways, he saw the government, what he called the government critic, as a corruption of the natural progressive force of the press that that he a trace back through the Protestant Reformation. On the other hand, he had to acknowledge that these were facts about the press in the period, and he immersed himself in this kind of literary warfare.
0: Just uh, in closing, Hazlitt occupies an interesting position in the the history of criticism, it seems. And I just wonder who you see following in his tradition or his practice.
1: Yeah. I mean, in certain ways, he represents a kind of man of letters, a kind of public intellectual that many of us feel is lost um, today. It's like Edmund
0: Wilson's example. Yeah.
1: Tom Pollan's a good example in the UK today. Pollan is very deliberate about producing this Irish-accented version of Hazlitt. He's interested in Hazlitt's Irish ancestry, and that's one of the things he's contributed to our understanding of Hazlitt. And Paul, and certainly in his own career, brings his own Irish background to his participation in the sort of public life of culture. Uh, On the other hand, as, as a certain kind of literary historian, Hazlitt's experience seems to me so distinctive to his own mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. that in many ways I resist that impulse to mm-hmm. find a contemporary equivalent and again and again I'm fascinated by how distinctive Hazlitt's experience was to his own time and he was even working that out for himself I mean he did not become the dissenting Unitarian minister that his father wanted him to. And the chapter of the book I'm writing on Hazlitt right now is trying to come to terms with this, because on the one hand, Hazlitt again and again paid tribute to his father's generation and to this radical dissenting tradition that he absolutely was convinced required religious faith. These people could not have Waged the political battles that they waged without that deep Christian faith. And it was a faith that Hazlitt evidently did not share. So in the same way that he, he helped negotiate the differences between what we now call the second generation of Romantic poets, you know, Keats and Shelley and Byron, and the earlier generation by staging those political contests, he was also working through the difference between his own public political voice, and his father's, which was from the pulpit, and that was a position Hazlitt decided n- not to take up for himself. It was one he could not occupy. So he was very alert to these kinds of historical differences, and in trying to understand him, that's, that's my sense of it, that he's very much uh, embedded in a particular historical episode.
0: You hear about the, the brilliance of, of these critics, and how to really appreciate their true genius you really do have to be in that period listening to them because countless accounts of of johnson and Mm -hmm. of coleridge and of of hazlitt talk about the fact that if you if you heard them talking you'd realize even more than the actual written word how great they were and Mm -hmm. it was it was about talking as opposed to writing
1: absolutely and i think you know one of the things...
0: And, and, and exchanging and, and arguing or debating and, and discussing.
1: And, and and one of the things that, you know, I like to think, you know, that you can still detect in, in Hazlitt is this sense of a culture. Again, he was a parliamentary reporter. Some of his, uh, you know, published... Uh, works on the history of literature started out as lectures. His early lecturing was apparently not very successful, but he became a good lecturer. You know, there were men of his age, Edmund Burke, John Falwell, men on the left and right, who were voices. Uh, And it's hard to capture that in the written word, but I think Hazlitt, better than others, does. Well,
0: I'm so happy we've been able to capture your voice.
1: Uh, Thank you.
0: I've been speaking with Kevin Gilmartin, professor of English at the California Institute of Technology and a regular visiting professor at the Center for English Studies in the University of York in England. Thanks again.
1: Thank you.